Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. I want to start off by thanking all of you for continuing to come back each week, hoping that I will have a new episode for you. For the last couple of weeks, I was really focused on getting the things that I kept saying I was falling behind on done. I wrapped up the series on Brandon Tina here on our regular feed. I wrapped up the series on Teresa Crossnor on Patreon. A couple of weeks ago, I brought Juliet's story to you and got some really good feedback on that one. Those first-person narratives, I'm a little bit iffy on sometimes, so I appreciate all of the comments and messages from those of you who really enjoyed that. I got tons of thank you cards mailed out to patrons. I had run out of stamps, but I made it to the post office. I got more, and I finished up all of those before I went to California last week, or earlier this week, actually. But before I get to today's episodes, there are just a couple of more things that I want to say about the show. This is an independent one-woman ad-free production, which means I rely solely on your help in keeping this show moving forward. We are well into our fifth year, and we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. You can help by leaving a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen to your shows on. You can follow the show on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also recommend the show in true crime discussion groups. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can donate a dollar or two every month to the show on Patreon. Every member will gain access to dozens of episodes already in the catalog, but also one exclusive bonus per month. Every patron, no matter whether you donate $1 or $100, everyone gets to listen. This week, I'd like to thank Stella G, Rebecca L, Jans, Connie L, Chantel, Nicola C, and Stormy R for recently joining Patreon or raising your pledge or making a PayPal donation. You can make your donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Like I said, I've mailed out thank you cards to everybody who has signed up except For those who signed up in the last two or three weeks or so, if you have not received a card, it may be because you opted out of receiving benefits. So message me with your mailing information if you did not intend to do that. Those of you who listed your mailing address with your PayPal donations should have also received a card. If you didn't, but you would like to, again, send me a message and I'll get that mailed out to you. Also, I have finally opened the merchandise store once again on Threadless. You will find almost all of the various artworks that I've used over the years, including Fred merchandise. The link will be in the show notes of this episode, including the new merchandise link. And I'm in the process of going through the entire back catalog of the show to update all of the links and hashtags. I'm even changing some of the titles of the old episodes to make it easier for you to find them. All right. Let's get started with today's episode. Way back in the first year of California Dreaming, I covered a case involving convicted mass murderer and family annihilator Vincent Brothers. I had always been intrigued by this case because of the seemingly impossible drive that Vincent made from Ohio to California and back to Ohio again in order to murder his entire family. There was some doubt as to whether or not 
he could have pulled this off. But after I covered the case on our show, I felt comfortable that they had the right person. So to recap, on July 6, 2003, Vincent's wife, Joni, his four-year-old son, Marquise, his two-year-old daughter, Lindsay, and his six-week-old infant son, Marshall, and his 70-year-old mother-in-law, Ernestine, were all murdered in Joni's Bakersfield, California home. Vincent and Joni were married in 2000, but ended up having the marriage annulled in less than a year's time. They got remarried in 2003 during her pregnancy with their third child, but he ended up moving out of the family home just three months or so after they got married for the second time. The last time anyone saw Joni, her three children, and her mother was at church services on Sunday, July 6, 2003. They were discovered dead inside Joni's home on Tuesday, July 8th, and from what investigators were able to tell, at first, it seemed like it could have been a burglary gone wrong, but the more they looked at the scene and investigated, the more it appeared that the burglary aspect of this whole thing was staged. Vincent had quickly become a suspect in the murders and ended up turning himself in to authorities while he was visiting his mother in North Carolina. However, he was only held for a couple of hours before being released due to a lack of evidence. Vincent traveled back to the Southern California area on Friday, July 11th. He did not attend the memorial services that were held for his family and his mother-in-law, though he did attend their funeral that Wednesday, July 16th. Vincent remained a primary suspect in the quintuple murders, but he was not taken into custody and charged with the murders until the spring of 2004, about nine months after his family was killed. Vincent went on trial in 2007, and it was considered to be one of the biggest cases in Bakersfield history. The case focused a great deal on Vincent's turbulent relationship with Joni, how they had been married, the marriage was annulled, and they were married again for a second time, all in a matter of three years' time. Vincent was notorious for being a womanizer and having numerous extramarital affairs, and he did further damage his own case when he took the stand in his own defense and lied to the court and to the jury about his affairs. In the end, the prosecutor said the motive for the killings was that the children were a financial burden, and the prosecutor tallied up a total of at least 41 times that Vincent Brothers lied while he was testifying on the stand. Vincent's story was that he flew out to Columbus, Ohio for the long 4th of July weekend. The 4th was that Friday, before the last time Joni and family were seen at church. While Brothers was in Ohio, he rented a car, and then proceeded to leave Columbus for the weekend, at which time he drove more than 2,200 miles or close to 3,500 kilometers back to Bakersfield, California, in order to murder his family after they arrived home from church services that Sunday, July 6th. Once he murdered them, 
he got back on the road and returned to Ohio and then drove another 800 miles or almost 1,300 kilometers or so to North Carolina to visit his mother to further solidify his alibi. Part of the case against Vincent involved hundreds of dead bugs that were found on the rental car that were said to have only been found in the western areas of the United States, as well as the huge number of miles that he racked up on the rental car's odometer. The readings on the odometer matched up to him having made the round trip from Ohio to California and back again. Vincent denied leaving Ohio for California after he flew there for the 4th of July weekend. But bug experts testified that some of the insects found lodged into the radiator of the rental car and in the car's air filter were native to states located west of the Rocky Mountains, which is a mountain range that extends down through Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. States to the west of that would include Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, and Arizona. What's more, the expert testified that the insects that they found were consistent with those being found along the two major routes while traveling east towards California. Now, I wasn't completely convinced with this bug evidence, but when it came to the 4,500 miles or more than 4,500 miles or 7,200 kilometers that Vincent put on the rental car in a matter of four or five days. I mean, that is a lot. According to the prosecution, Vincent had flown from California to Columbus on Wednesday, July 2nd, and either on Thursday or Friday, July 3rd or 4th, he drove back to Bakersfield. On Sunday, July 6th, he murdered his family, and on Late Monday the 7th or early Tuesday the 8th, he arrived back in Ohio. And then on that Tuesday, he drove to North Carolina with one of his brothers to visit his mom. And his family was discovered deceased that same day. So on May 15, 2007, Vincent Brothers was convicted of five counts of first degree murder with a special circumstance of multiple murders. Two weeks later, the jury recommended that he be sentenced to death, which the judge gave him on September 27, 2007. Today, Vincent Brothers is 60 years old, and he resides in the condemned section of San Quentin State Prison. Not that any of this had anything to do with Vincent Brothers murdering his family, but he is said to have had a long history of troubled relationships and troubling behavior. He had been married four times, he had briefly gone to jail for spousal abuse in 1988. He had served six days and then was placed on probation in that case. His second wife divorced him after she claimed he threatened her life several times and was often violent towards her. In 1996, Vincent sexually harassed a woman that he worked with at Fremont Elementary School where he was the vice principal. This woman further claimed that he attacked her and changed her mind about going to the police about it because he was such a respected leader in the community. The school conducted an internal investigation, but he denied all of the allegations made against him. But other than receiving a warning from the school, Vincent Brothers was never otherwise disciplined. 
I think at the time that I did this episode, we had somewhat of a discussion about this case. And if I'm not mistaken, most of us agreed that we believed that he was guilty. I, for one, could not get past the thousands of miles that he put on the rental car in such a short amount of time. I don't think he otherwise had any other explanations for that. I want to say that one of the first places I heard about this story was on Forensic Files, which I have been re-binging lately at night to fall asleep. And it was a couple of nights ago during my binge that I was reminded of another case of a husband who went to some great lengths to try and create an alibi for himself in a crime that he was accused of committing. His efforts were just as elaborate as Vincent's, but this guy managed to leave a big, huge mess everywhere that he went that pretty much sealed the case against him as far as investigators were concerned. And because the ridiculousness of his crimes and his toupee, this episode of California Dreaming will be known as The Tale of the Worst Cover-Ups Ever. Okay, so I actually don't think that Vincent Brothers had one of the worst cover-ups ever. He was convicted on mostly circumstantial evidence. A Reddit contributor broke it down recently because an episode of Dateline had aired in the last few weeks called The Lost Weekend, and it sparked a conversation about whether or not Vincent is guilty or innocent. First, there seemed to be a lack of a motive for the killings. To me, the motivation for Vincent to murder his wife and children would probably be similar to several other family annihilators, such as Scott Peterson, Chris Watts, John List, Grant Amato, Susan Smith, Diane Downs, you know, people of that sort, love and or money. The Reddit contributor said that it is doubtful that the motivation was completely financial. Vincent Brothers had a history of troubled relationships and situations with women in the past. He had somewhat of a bad temper. We know his marriage to his wife was rocky, but ultimately the prosecution put forth that the main reason for the killings was to rid himself of the financial burden of having three children with a woman that he didn't want to be with anymore. And he had at least one or more women waiting in the wings, just like Chris Watts, just like Scott Peterson and Susan Smith and Diane Downs. Those women, they wanted to be with men who expressed their disinterest in being with them because of their children. At least that was the perception. The killings of Vincent's wife, his three children, and his mother-in-law appeared to have been a crime with that very goal in mind, to kill those individuals and for no other reason but to kill them. It was very purposeful and efficient. The whole thing came across as a very targeted killing aimed to do exactly what happened, eliminate the entire family. The whole break-in thing appeared to be staged. And it would make sense that if this was a burglary gone wrong, that perhaps the burglar would have needed to kill the wife and the mother-in-law in order to prevent them from ever being able to identify him. But to go as far as to kill the children as well, they were only four years old, two years old, and six weeks old. 
even the four-year-old would not have been taken into consideration as a witness. The kind of person who breaks into a home when it is empty in order to burglarize it does so because they want to avoid encounters with the occupants of the home. If the whole thing escalates to murder because the occupants interrupt the burglary, is this person going to be sadistic enough to not only murder the adults, the only ones who could potentially be witnesses, but also decide to murder the children as well? And a six-week-old baby? Really? To me, the only reason anyone would have to murder a six-week-old is either they are sadistically evil or they don't want the years-long responsibility of that child. What are the chances that some crazed mass thrill killer happened upon the family the very same weekend as Vincent's vanishing act? Pretty slim to none. That is a huge coincidence. At the scene of the crime, there was a piece of latex glove discovered amongst items that had been tossed around in the laundry room area to give the appearance that the murders were a robbery gone wrong. The DNA in that piece of latex glove was matched to Vincent's DNA, but for the defense, it was not considered to be linchpin level evidence in and of itself because he had been in the home in the not too distant past. But what are the chances that this piece of latex glove with Vincent's DNA on it just happened to turn up among the items that had been used to stage the burglary by someone other than Vincent himself? If someone was trying to frame Vincent for the murders by planting a piece of evidence, wouldn't they have used something much bigger and much more obvious? And to me, it seems more likely that that piece of latex glove ripped off the hand of the person wearing it as they were hurriedly working on the staging of the break-in because that DNA was Vincent's and nobody else's. There was a witness who was a former student at the school where Vincent worked who testified that he or she saw him near the family home during the time frame that he would have been in California in order to commit the murders. But the defense put forth evidence to demonstrate that the witness was not reliable because some years prior, he or she had some sort of injury that caused short-term memory loss. The witness insisted that their memory was fine now. Some years had passed after that accident. But the defense tried asking the witness some rapid-fire random questions on the stand to try and demonstrate that this witness still had memory loss problems. But, you know, asking questions in a high-pressure situation such as testifying in court versus whether or not you recall seeing a former teacher outside the house are two different things. When it comes to the circumstances of the case against Vincent, what would have had to have happened is that someone other than Vincent Brothers had to have just so happened to have murdered his entire family for some reason that nobody had any idea about Otherwise, other suspects would have come out during the investigation and that other killer just happened to choose the same exact time period when Vincent was unable to account for his whereabouts or while he was setting up this elaborate alibi. Vincent claimed that he was in Ohio the whole time. His bank card was used to make purchases there, 
but it turned out that it was his brother using his card and signing for him, and there was video surveillance proof that it was his brother and not him making those purchases as well. And with that video evidence, the prosecution was able to discredit Vincent on the stand. When Vincent was questioned about his whereabouts, he lied. He turned over receipts to try and prove that he was in Ohio until he was confronted with that video evidence that it wasn't him. What reason would Vincent have had to have lied about where he was if he was trying to prove that he didn't murder his wife and kids? He also changed his story and needed to come up with another alibi to try and explain why one of his brothers had not seen him for several days that weekend in Ohio by saying he spent that weekend with another brother. And that other brother could not be found for trial, and many believe he vanished on purpose because he was trying to help Vincent cover up these murders. There was also a car accident. Vincent's defense claimed that he was in while he was in Ohio during the time that he would have had to have been in California committing the murders. A boy riding a bike had run into a car that was stopped at an intersection in Columbus, Ohio. The boy was fine and the police were not called and the defense insisted that it was Vincent who was the driver of that car and it was his rental car that was hit. Witnesses also said that the person driving the car resembled Vincent and the car looked like the one that he had rented. However, the prosecution came up with a completely different story of the car accident and they came up with the person who they said it was he who got into the accident with the boy that day, but the defense claimed that he denied to their investigator that it was him, but in the end, that driver got on the stand and swore that he was the one who had the accident at the intersection that day, and it was on the day that the murders actually took place. But like I said, for me, it was the odometer reading. Even though the rental car company said that there could be mistakes that happened recording those odometer readings, that would have had to have been a huge, nearly 5,000 mile coincidence again against Vincent Brothers. An odometer reading mistake that just so happened to be nearly the exact same distance Vincent would have needed to have driven in order to go from Ohio to California and back. There were also no videos of Vincent getting gas along the way, but he could have pulled a Jody Arias and taken some gas cans along with him. So while it's possible somewhere in the realm of possibilities that somebody else murdered Vincent's family and he just so happened to fall into that category of the most unluckiest criminal defendant ever, there just wasn't enough reasonable doubt for the jury. And... Not only did they convict him, they recommended death. Though it is unlikely that Vincent will be put to death in California at the rate that things are going there, people can still be sentenced to death, but there is an indefinite moratorium and who knows when that will change. So going from one elaborate cover-up to another, I wanted to share with you another forensic files case, the story of Earl and Ruby Morris. And it is actually quite a sad story in particular when it comes to Ruby Morris because of all the trauma that she endured throughout her childhood and then considering what would eventually happen to her, it's a case that hits hard on a variety of levels. So 
Let me share her story with you now. Ruby and Earl Morris met way back in 1959 at a bar in Memphis, Tennessee. At the time, Ruby had one child, a son named Randy. When I did the math, Randy would have been born sometime in 1956, which means Ruby was only 14 years old when she had him. She was born in 1942. When she met Earl, she was 17. They got married that same year that they met, and in 1960, she gave birth to a daughter that they named Donna. The dates are kind of important to keep in mind because we are going to come back to them later on in our story. When Earl and Ruby got married, he also officially adopted her son, Randy. And of course, Donna was born while they were married, so he would obviously be considered the father and listed on her birth certificate as such. At some point, the family moved from Tennessee to a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona called Cave Creek. An interesting, notable tidbit that I discovered about Cave Creek is that the town drew a bit of media attention back in 2009 when a city council election tie was broken by the candidates drawing cards for the win. It turns out that in the state of Arizona, election ties can be broken by a game of chance. Anyway, Cave Creek was a great place to raise a family, and it wasn't the type of town where there would be random dollar stores and Starbucks or fast food restaurants popping up everywhere because it worked and continues to work to maintain its quirky Old West feel to it. Ruby and Earl were both certified public accountants and they opened their own accounting firm in Phoenix and they were quite successful. They started the business from the ground up and it would eventually make them both certified millionaires. That enabled them to purchase a beautiful, sprawling home on five acres of land in Cave Creek, where they raised their children. The family also enjoyed vacationing and road trips. The family had an RV, and they also purchased a cabin cruiser that they kept at a marina in San Diego, California. And just for our information, a cabin cruiser is a motorboat that is nicer than the average motorboat, but not quite as fancy as a yacht, though it might be able to be passed off as a yacht if it's nice enough. So yeah, the family were quite comfortable and they enjoyed life. And as for the kids, by 1989, Randy was around 33 years old. He was married and had three children of his own. Their middle child, Donna, she was 29 and was an aspiring country singer. And her father, Earl, managed her career. And they did add a third child, their youngest. They named Cynthia. She was around 23 years old at the time. And she worked at a local restaurant and still lived at home with Ruby and Earl. But that was about to change. On Sunday, June 4th, 1989, Earl had plans to drive from Arizona to California to attend a concert that their daughter, Donna, was set to perform at. Ruby, however, was not going to go on that trip because she had plans to spend time with their youngest daughter, Cynthia. Cynthia was moving out into her own place and they were doing some shopping 
and Ruby wanted to help her get her place ready. But when Sunday morning rolled around, Cynthia was at her new place waiting for her mom to arrive, but she never did. And this was unusual and very out of character for Ruby because she had been looking forward to spending time with her daughter, spending the day and going shopping. And for her to not call or to not show up, that never happened. Cynthia tried calling her parents' house, but nobody answered. She ended up driving over there, but her mother wasn't there. Nobody was at the house. And when Cynthia looked around, she found it strange that nobody had armed the house alarm, which was something that they were pretty vigilant about. Cynthia found that her mother's purse was nowhere to be found anywhere inside the house, but oddly enough, her mom's car was still there. She knew that her dad had gone to California, and she knew that her mom didn't go with him, so why would Ruby's car be there, but Ruby not be? Also, her mom and her dad had long parked their cars in the same spots every single time that they parked for years, and it never changed. However, Ruby's car was parked in a different place than where she normally parked it. Cynthia knew that her mom was very organized and meticulous and rarely changed any of her habits. So the car being out of place was troubling. But also there were other things around the house that Cynthia found to be very unusual for her mother to have left into the, in the condition that she found them in. The washing machine was overflowing with dirty laundry. It was piled up, really messy and haphazardly. Ruby, who was the one who always did the laundry, would have never just thrown dirty clothes on top of the dryer next to the washing machine. She would have put everything inside of it. She also found the bathtub faucet dripping kind of rapidly. It had not been shut off tightly. And that was another thing that Ruby would have not left like that. Cynthia also noticed that a carpet steam cleaner that the family had had recently been used, but it wasn't rinsed out and it was left in the hallway. Whenever her mom used the carpet steam cleaner, she always cleaned it out, packed it up, and put it away. Cynthia would also eventually notice that a gun that her parents owned that they had kept for protection, it was a 22 caliber pistol that was also missing. Other than that, there did not appear to be anything else from the home that was taken. All of the valuables were accounted for. There was no indication that there was any sort of struggle that took place. But still, the whole thing worried Cynthia. And at the time, she also couldn't be sure where her father was either. So she contacted law enforcement to report her mother missing. Eventually, Cynthia was able to get a hold of her dad in California and tell him the news that Ruby was missing. Earl told his daughter that he would drive back to Arizona right away. He had driven to California in his car, which was an El Camino. And as many of you know, Chevrolet manufactured the El Camino to be a coupe utility vehicle that wasn't like a typical pickup truck in that they adapted it from their standard two-door station wagon and integrated the cab of the station wagon and the cargo bed into the body. So it was kind of like a car that was also a pickup truck. 
Cynthia also got in touch with her older brother, Randy, and as soon as he got the news that their mom was missing, his first thought was maybe she was somewhere on their five-acre property, perhaps she was injured, so he took the family's ATV and searched for Ruby all around the areas surrounding the home. Cynthia searched the property closer to the house on foot to see if there was any sign of Ruby anywhere near the house but neither one of them found any sign of their mom. Ruby and Earl's middle daughter, Donna, also came from California to Arizona to help in the search for their mother. She had missing person flyers made up that included a $1,000 reward and posted those anywhere and everywhere that she could around the Phoenix area. And she also made calls and spoke to everybody that she can think of who might have an idea of where Ruby may have gone or what happened to her. In the meantime, investigators were going to try and do a search of Ruby and Earl's home for themselves to see if there was anything that would be able to give them an idea of what may have happened to Ruby or where she may have gone. But mostly they really wanted to talk to Earl. Even though he said he would be headed back from California to Arizona right away, He took much longer than the five and a half to six hours that police expected it would take him to get back. And when Earl did arrive, investigators brought him down to the police station to speak to him. They wanted to know if he had any idea what may have happened to Ruby. They asked about his whereabouts in the last couple of days, and they wanted some information about the state of his relationship with Ruby. They wanted to know about their marriage, if there were any problems, things of that sort. Earl told investigators that his relationship with Ruby was generally good. They got along well. They had worked together for nearly three decades running their successful accounting business and raising their kids, and that they were very much enjoying being grandparents. He did say that like any other relationship, they argued But it was never anything serious or that carried on for an extended period of time. It was just typical stuff that every married couple fights about. Nothing unusual, nothing to write home about. Investigators also asked if Ruby leaving without telling anyone for more than a day or two at a time was something that she had done in the past. And Earl said, oh yeah, She's done that before, plenty of times. But usually, he said, it's because she's upset about something and she always calls to let them know that she was taking some time to herself to cool off. So for her to not call, this was a new thing. Investigators also wanted to know about the gun that their daughter Cynthia told them about. She had said that her parents owned a 22 caliber pistol and she reported to them that she did not find the gun in the usual place where they kept it. Earl confirmed that, yes, the gun that they usually had in their bedroom was indeed missing. He said he just saw it there recently, and yeah, now it was gone. He had no explanation for that. This had investigators wondering if perhaps this could be something more than just a missing person. Is it possible that Ruby took the gun? and went to some other location to harm herself? Or did someone else take both her and the gun and harm her? 
At this early stage of the investigation, nothing had been ruled out yet. One thing that investigators did notice right away is that not only did Earl take much longer than the six or so hours it should have taken him to make the drive back from San Diego to Phoenix, when he did arrive back in Phoenix, he was not driving his El Camino, which investigators were interested in searching. Instead, Earl was driving a rental car. He explained that the reason why it took him so long to get back to Phoenix is that because on the drive back, his El Camino broke down, so he had to rent a car in order to make it the rest of the way home. He gave investigators permission to search this vehicle, and when they did, they noticed something kind of odd. Earl had a piece of luggage in the trunk of the rental car. Attached to the handle of the luggage was a recent airport luggage tag for a flight to Phoenix from San Diego. When investigators obtained a list of passengers on that specific flight, Earl Morris's name was not on it, but there was the name G. Norris with an N. It turns out that Earl was his middle name. His first name is Galen, which is a name I'd never heard before, and when I looked it up, I found that it is typically a girl's name. So yeah, it's probably why he decided to go by Earl instead for most of his life. In order to verify that it was Earl that was on that flight from San Diego to Phoenix, investigators put together a photo lineup that included Earl's picture and they took it to the airline. They spoke to the crew members who were working on that specific flight to see if any of them would have been able to identify Earl as being one of the passengers on the plane that day. One of the flight attendants was able to pick Earl's photo out of the group of pictures and the reason why this flight attendant was so certain that she had seen him is because she recalled how terrible his toupee looked. Now, dreamers, it's never really made clear as to what the luggage tag on the suitcase meant or how it played into this case. The only thing that I could really think of is that it was evident something else was going on with Earl, and I have a theory about that, but I will share that with you a little bit later in the story. But for this case, the luggage tag really doesn't play much of a factor. It just kind of piqued investigators' interest. The fact that Earl had that luggage tag on his suitcase and that flight attendant confirmed that it was him on that flight, it raised enough red flags for investigators to obtain a search warrant for the Morris's house. They were beginning to suspect that there might be foul play involved in Ruby's disappearance and they wondered why Earl was attempting to travel back and forth between San Diego and Phoenix so quickly and surreptitiously in recent days and weeks. Now, at this point, investigators had already conducted a cursory search of the home back when Cynthia first contacted law enforcement to report her mother missing. Now, they wanted to do a much more thorough search of the residence. They did know from the initial search that there had been some cleaning that had gone on in the home. That was evident with the faucet in the bathtub dripping water, but also because of the carpet shampooer that had recently been used and left out in the hallway. 
When they looked around the house the first time, they didn't notice anything like blood anywhere around the house. So they wanted to bring in their crime scene investigators to take a closer look. To see if there had been blood that had been cleaned up, they used luminol and an alternative light source. And when they did so, they were able to see the places where blood had been deposited previously and had indeed been cleaned up. They first sprayed luminol in some areas in the master bedroom of the home. They applied it to the headboard of the bed, and when the alternative light was applied to that area, it lit up. The blood pattern on the headboard was that of a very fine, high-velocity mist pattern indicative of a gunshot wound. The mattress of the bed also had some blood droplets on it, but the blood had also seeped into and saturated deep into the mattress itself. The next location the forensics team applied the luminol was in the bathroom, and when they turned on their alternative light, the whole bottom of the bathtub illuminated, indicating that something or someone had bled for a period of time while laying in the bathtub, or there was a large amount of blood that had been deposited into the bathtub. Areas that also lit up when sprayed with luminol included an area of the bedroom carpeting that led from the bathroom to the bed and from there to the sliding glass door that had gone out into the back patio. Blood had went all the way from the bathroom onto the carpet to the glass door and some in the railing of the door and out onto the cement on the outside the patio. Clearly there was something that had happened that caused someone to bleed in that room a lot. It didn't necessarily mean that somebody was dead, but someone was at the very least very seriously injured and bleeding profusely. But now the thing was they needed to figure out who that blood belonged to. They believed that they were looking at blood that came from Ruby Morris. Investigators just needed to prove it. At that time, back in 1989, scientists were able to do DNA testing but they needed samples from Ruby herself in order to test the blood that they had found in the master bedroom of her home. They did not have her body. She was still missing. So what they did was they took blood samples from her three children to compare to the blood stains that they had. That would have been sufficient to match up at least half of the markers to determine that the DNA from the kids matched the DNA from the blood in the bedroom and they tested all three of Ruby's children just to make sure that their findings were accurate. Remember, this is still very early on in the DNA testing process. For some reason, while doing all this testing, they decided to test Earl Morris's DNA against that of his three children as well. I guess maybe to just make sure or confirm the accuracy of their testing, all three of the kids came up as a 50% match to the DNA from the stains found in their parents' bedroom. But when they compared the kids' DNA to Earl's, investigators were surprised to find that the two oldest children's DNA did not match up to Earl's. Now, dreamers, this doesn't surprise us because in the beginning I told you when Earl and Ruby met 30 years earlier back in 1959, Ruby had already had her son, Randy. She had given birth to him when she was 14 years old. 
I told you that she and Earl got married that same year that they met, and in 1960, Ruby gave birth to her second child, Donna. But because she was married to Earl, and he had already adopted Randy, it was just assumed, understood, and accepted that he was Donna's father. It might have been too close to call at the time because of the time that they met and the time that they got married. Maybe Ruby knew that she was pregnant and she knew that the baby wasn't Earl's. Maybe neither one of them truly knew and just assumed Earl was the dad. Either way, this DNA testing 30 years later confirmed that Donna was not Earl's child. Whether or not he knew that, we don't know for sure. But of course, Earl did know that their oldest, Randy, definitely wasn't his. So who was Randy and Donna's father? Through the investigation and subsequent DNA testing, it was revealed that Ruby's father, a man named Clyde B. Williams, was the father of Ruby's two oldest children. So for years, Ruby had been sexually abused and raped by her own father and became pregnant by him twice. Now, Dreamers, here is an inconsistency that I found in the Forensic Files episode. It was said on that episode that once investigators found out that Ruby had become pregnant by her own father through the DNA tests that were conducted by investigators looking into her disappearance, they contacted their counterparts in Tennessee and that they went and charged Clyde B. Williams with incest, among other related crimes. Here's the problem. When I searched around on the internet, I found Clyde B. Williams on Find a Grave, and he had actually passed away on January 24, 1976, some 13 years before Ruby Morris went missing. And I don't know how they would have had access to any of his DNA to have tested it against Ruby's two oldest children to confirm that they were his. And I'm not even sure what or how they would have been led to Ruby's father to have wanted to test him against the children's DNA in the first place. I mean, they found out that they weren't Earl's, but they could have been anybody's kids. Also, there was very, very little to be found on the internet about Clyde Williams other than his find a grave. But I am certain that that is the correct one because Ruby Morris is listed as his daughter and nobody else is listed on there. And we know that Ruby had at least one sister, which we will learn more about a little later in the story. Clyde Williams's birthday is listed as February 20th, 1914. Ruby was born in 1942, so he would have been 28 years old when she was born. He died in January of 1976, just before he was about to turn 62 years old. The only other thing listed about him is that he was a private first class in the army during World War II, which is the third lowest ranking in the army, so it doesn't seem like he stayed enlisted for very long. Clyde Williams would have been 27 years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked, so he was a little bit older when he would have enlisted. I tried looking around for any court cases related to Clyde B. Williams out of Tennessee, but there was nothing. So the only thing that I can think of is that maybe Clyde Williams 
was charged with crimes related to the incest or the rape of his daughter sometime after the fact, but before he actually died in 1976. But he was definitely not indicted and charged in 1989, as the Forensic Files episode had indicated on this case. It's not the first time that I found inconsistencies and mistakes when we've covered cases that Forensic Files has covered. But you know, it's not meant to be a full breakdown and analysis of the cases that the show covers in only 20 minutes. Whatever happened with Clyde Williams, it may have had an impact on Ruby's case in 1989 in terms of her disappearance and her possible state of mind, considering that she had endured years of sexual abuse and rape perpetrated by her own father, leading to the possibility of having bouts of depression and or potentially be considered suicidal. Now, as for Earl Morris, he, of course, knew that Randy was not his child, but he adopted him after he married Ruby and they raised Randy as though he was Earl's son. According to an article that I read about this case, it was never revealed to Randy that Earl had adopted him. He did not find out until Ruby's disappearance and the DNA proved that Earl wasn't his father. It was only then he found out that his real father was actually his grandfather. Maybe. Like I said, the Forensic Files claims that they found out through the DNA testing that Ruby's father was the father of her children. but. I don't know how that information all came about. The only thing that I think that could have happened is that Earl divulged that information. Earl perhaps knew that Ruby had become pregnant by her own dad, and he was the one who told that information to investigators. Otherwise, I don't know how that all came about, but it definitely wasn't because of DNA testing. When Ruby gave birth to Randy when she was 14, everyone was told that this was Ruby's little brother. That was a story until she married Earl. It was then that she began raising Randy as her own along with Earl. When it came to their middle child, there wasn't anything said about the revelation that she wasn't Earl's biological child either since she was born after Ruby and Earl got married, but they probably knew at least Ruby most likely was aware. And if all of that wasn't enough, Ruby's children had another family secret to reveal to investigators. They said that Ruby had indeed been struggling with depression in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. Of course, they would not have known about the family secret that she had been raped by her father. No, there was something else. The problem that they knew that their mother was struggling with was the fact that Earl and Ruby's own sister, Peggy, were having an affair. So yeah, it was another thing that this poor woman had to deal with in life. It was said that she found out about the affair when she just so happened to be at the Phoenix airport with her youngest daughter, Cynthia, and they spotted Earl there meeting Peggy when she secretly flew into town for a rendezvous with him. So Peggy was traveling by airplane from where she lived in Louisiana to carry on this affair with her sister's husband. I don't know if Ruby and Cynthia had just coincidentally happened to be at the airport at the same time that Earl and Peggy were meeting there, but to me, it sounds like that there may have been a suspicion about it 
and she and her daughter maybe followed Earl there to see what he was up to. And that's when they caught the two of them. And that's when she became aware of the affair. But whatever the case was, when Ruby gave Earl an ultimatum about the affair, he brushed her off and told her that he had no intentions of ending it. And this caused investigators to wonder if perhaps Peggy may have been involved in her own sister's disappearance. Through their investigation, detectives working on Ruby's disappearance did find out that Peggy did have plans to fly from her home in Louisiana to San Diego to meet up with Earl on that same weekend that Ruby disappeared. Phone records revealed that the two of them were in regular contact and Peggy had a plane ticket to arrive in California the day after Ruby vanished, but she ended up missing her flight. So investigators were able to confirm Peggy's whereabouts and they were able to determine that she was not in either San Diego or Phoenix during the time that her sister went missing. That was when investigators put it together that Earl had recently traveled from Phoenix to San Diego, and while it is left unsaid in the episode, I think that it's proof that Earl had been traveling frequently to San Diego to meet up with Peggy in order to carry on their affair, and that's why he had that airline luggage tag on his suitcase when investigators looked into the trunk of his car. Police were able to confirm that Earl had been in San Diego that Sunday, and they found his El Camino parked at the San Diego airport. When he got back to Arizona to meet with investigators, he was driving the rental car. He had said that his car had broken down somewhere along the way back to Arizona, so this was another inconsistency in his story because his car was still in San Diego, which meant he rented the car at the airport and then made his way back to Phoenix. The truth was, Earl did not want to come back in his El Camino because of the potential incriminating evidence that a search of his car would have likely revealed. When forensic investigators had a chance to take a closer look at Earl's vehicle, they could see that the carpeting on the floorboards of the passenger side had recently been cleaned. When luminol and alternative lighting were applied to the inside of the El Camino, it was revealed that there had been a large, saturated blood stain on the passenger side of the vehicle. They were also able to determine that based on the size of the blood stain, that it was likely that whoever lost all of that blood was no longer alive. When the DNA of the blood was analyzed, it was found to be a match to the DNA of the blood found in Ruby and Earl's master bedroom, which they had already identified as having come from Ruby. Now, investigators were left wondering, where was Ruby's body? Did he drive her all the way from Arizona to San Diego, California in his El Camino to hide her somewhere? Is she somewhere in the vast desert in between the two cities? And why in the world would he do something like this? Well, as I told you earlier... Earl and Ruby owned a cabin cruiser that they kept docked at a marina in San Diego. When investigators spoke to the marina employees, they were able to confirm that Earl Morris was there at the marina on Monday, June 5th, the day after he left for California to go see his daughter Donna sing in concert, supposedly. 
The marina employees also saw Earl take his boat out for a ride that day as well. Investigators immediately obtained a search warrant for the boat and went out to San Diego to that marina. But when they arrived, the boat was not docked in its usual spot. Detectives requested the assistance of the United States Coast Guard in locating the Morris's boat, and that's when the Coast Guard informed investigators of a boat that was approximately the same size as the boat that they were looking for that they discovered on fire off the shore of San Diego, about 13 miles or 20 kilometers off the coast on June 5th. And that boat ended up sinking. By the time they had gotten to it, it was too late. And when it was discovered, it ended up sinking within just minutes. When the reports of the boat fire came in, local news helicopters flew out to the location and were able to capture actual footage of the boat while it was still burning. There did not appear to be anyone on the boat or floating anywhere nearby, so it was assumed that if there was anybody on board, that they perished either in the fire or in the ocean. The footage that that news helicopter took of the burning boat revealed that the fire appeared to burn in a way that was not typical of the way a boat normally burns. If a boat catches on fire, it's usually a fire caused by a malfunction in the engine. Therefore, the boat will burn from where the engine or the fuel tank is located, near the back or the stern of the boat. But this fire appeared to have started right in the middle of the boat and was burning outward not close to the engine area at all. So that was a little suspicious to the Coast Guard. They were also able to see that there was a lantern laying in the middle of the boat on top of some of the melted fiberglass structure of the vessel, which had the Coast Guard thinking that the fire could have possibly been started on purpose with somebody having tossed it there, igniting the blaze. The whole thing with the burning boat with nobody on board or overboard only added to the mystery of what the heck was going on here with the Morrises. It was also soon discovered that Earl had rented a small boat from a company called Club Nautico of Mission Bay. They had the contract where it showed that Earl Morris had paid for the rental of the small boat along with the $500 deposit that he had to put down which he got back when he returned it. The boat was rented on June 5th, 1989. That was a Monday, and it was 9.15 in the morning, and he turned the boat back in at noon. The Coast Guard became aware of the boat fire just about that same time, noon on June 5th. It was then that investigators came to believe that Ruby Morris was most likely on that burning boat, and when it sank she went down with it. Even though they did not have Ruby's body, and they were certain that they never would, investigators believed that they had enough evidence to prove that there was foul play involved in her disappearance, and that she was, in fact, dead, and that Earl Morris was the person responsible for it. When they looked at the totality of the evidence that they had uncovered since they began investigating the case, They believed that they had enough to prove that she had been murdered. 
First of all, they had that blood evidence discovered all over her master bedroom. The high-velocity, fine-mist blood spatter on the headboard of her bed, the blood that had pooled in the bathtub, the blood trail across her bedroom floor leading to the sliding glass door onto the patio pavement, and the significantly large blood pool discovered in the passenger side floorboard of Earl Morris's El Camino. They knew that the Morrises had a missing 22 caliber pistol, and based on the blood spatter on the headboard, it was evident that Ruby had been shot while she was asleep in her own bed. The only person in the home at the time would have been her husband, Earl. From there, he began the process of this elaborate cover-up that he had concocted, starting with his attempt at cleaning up all of the blood evidence in the bedroom and in the bathroom, all the way up to the burning of the boat. Because of there being no body, this was going to be a largely circumstantial case, and the investigation was going to take some time. Earl cooperated with the police investigation for a time, but by October of 1989, about four months after Ruby's disappearance, he stopped talking to police altogether. Earl was taken into custody and charged with the murder of his wife. He was indicted in March of 1990. When Earl Morris went on trial in January of 1992 for the murder of his wife, the prosecution put forth a theory of what happened to Ruby Morris. The challenge was the fact that they did not have Ruby's body, so they needed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a murder took place. They told the jury that in the pre-dawn hours of Sunday, June 4th, 1989, Earl quietly went into the master bedroom that he shared with his wife, and while she slept, he shot her in the head with a 22 caliber pistol that the couple owned. It's a gun that was never recovered. He then dragged her body from the bed to the bathroom where he placed her into the bathtub. He took off the clothing that she was wearing and rinsed all the blood off of her body into the tub. He then redressed her and placed a baseball cap on her head in order to cover up the gunshot wound. He then took Ruby out to the garage and placed her in the passenger seat of his Camino. I described the car for you earlier, so you know that this particular vehicle has a pickup bed and not a trunk, so Earl had no choice but to put her into the cab of the vehicle seated next to him in the passenger seat. I guess he did the best that he could to get Ruby to stay as upright as possible, but because of the blood that pooled on the floorboard of the car, it seemed as though she spent some amount of time completely slumped forward, and she continued bleeding from her head wound. From there, Earl collected the bloody clothing and the bedding, which he piled outside the sliding glass door onto the concrete outside the bedroom. He then packed all of that stuff with him in the car, along with the murder weapon. At some point before he left Phoenix for San Diego, Earl cleaned up as much of the blood as he could inside the house. Evidence later showed that he wiped down the headboard he scrubbed down the bathroom and the bathtub. He shampooed the blood out of the carpet and scrubbed it off the patio outside the master bedroom and sliding glass door. And later, when crime scene investigators examined the bedroom, 
The blood that had been there was revealed when luminol and alternative light sources were applied. Earl then began his drive to San Diego. And yes, that's a five to six hour drive, some 400 miles or almost 650 kilometers with his dead wife next to him in the passenger seat. He even made at least one stop to fill up his gas tank. And for that whole entire drive and stop at the gas station, not one single person noticed that the passenger in his vehicle was deceased. People may have noticed, they may have noticed that she was slumped over. Perhaps Ruby appeared to be asleep. Or perhaps people just minded their own business. I wondered what I would have done. I drive a lot through the desert to and from California. And I've done it enough where I just don't pay attention to what's going on around me outside the car. I'm not checking out the scenery, and I'm certainly not concerning myself with what's going on in other people's vehicles. So I'm not completely surprised that nobody noticed, and even if they did, they probably thought that she was sleeping, because who's going to think that there is a dead person cruising along in the passenger seat of a car? Maybe a cop would, or a highway patrol officer. Maybe some of us true crime fans, but for the most part, I don't think anyone's paying all that much attention, especially on a long drive through the desert. And obviously, considering Earl made it to San Diego without raising any suspicions, nobody did. Once Earl was in San Diego, he went to the marina where their cabin cruiser was docked. And somehow, again, he managed to get his wife's body onto the boat without anybody noticing. This was on a clear, bright morning, Monday, June 5th. Because we know he rented that smaller boat at 9.15 that morning also, we know what the time frame was when he got her onto the boat. He placed Ruby, the bloody bedding, the bloody clothing, and the murder weapon on the boat also, along with a lantern and a small tank of gasoline. He attached the smaller rental boat to the back of his boat with a tow rope, and he headed away from the marina. He ended up about 13 miles or 20 kilometers off the coast, and once Earl felt like he was far out enough, he doused the boat and Ruby with the gasoline. He detached the rental boat, he got into it, and then he threw the lantern onto his boat, igniting the gas. He managed to motor the small boat away from the scene before the Coast Guard was alerted that there was a boat on fire off the coast. It was only minutes before the boat sank. Did that news helicopter make it out to the location of the fire, capturing those images of it still burning? Both the boat and Ruby were never recovered. According to an article that I read about this case, it stated that the boat sank in waters that were 2,000 feet or a little more than 600 meters deep, and the cost was just too high to try and recover the boat or the body, considering the chances of finding everything were pretty slim. In the Forensic Files episode, there really wasn't very much in the way of speculation as to the motive for the killing. 
In a Los Angeles Times article about this case, it stated that the prosecution said that the motive was twofold, that Ruby had recently confronted Earl about his affair with her sister, and that she had threatened to expose him and what he had done to their family, which would have humiliated him. And the article also alluded to the fact that Earl Morris was skimming money from their accounting business, and Ruby intended to expose him for that as well and that he murdered her in order to silence her, to not only prevent her from humiliating him for the affair and the stealing of the money that he was doing from their business, but she had also reportedly told Earl that she intended on filing for divorce, and she was demanding and was likely going to get a large chunk of their marital assets, which at the time amounted to a little more than $2 million. While Earl Morris didn't go through all the hassle to rid himself of his wife in this manner to just give up in the face of the claims that the prosecution was making against him in court, he had a defense, and he fully intended to get on the stand and explain to the court that the prosecution had it all wrong. There are some clips of him on the Forensic Files episode testifying And to me, Earl Morris just comes across as really arrogant and fake and unbelievable. It's his body language, his fake remorse, these abbreviated dramatic pauses that he makes in his testimony. And to me, it's just bad all around. And I don't think that there was much more that he could have done to come across any better to the jury. But in an article in the Phoenix New Times, that was reporting on the trial at the time stated, quote, A former Marine pilot, the six foot tall Morris, dresses neatly, has good posture, and a sense of timing. His taste in some areas is questionable. His jet black toupee, for example, is much too obvious. On the witness stand, Morris often hesitates briefly before answering. It never fails to bring the jurors into a forward lean, awaiting his answers. This article saw all these theatrics and dramatic pauses as good timing. I didn't get that feeling from it. I think that Earl Morris was just being very measured and careful to make sure that his lies landed the way that he wanted them to. But to me, they landed just about as well as that stupid toupee on his stupid head did. Natupay deserves a trial of its own. He was able to wear that thing and to quote-unquote dress nice because he had been free on $580,000 bail during his trial. So, Earl's defense was that Ruby committed suicide. And because he was afraid that his family would blame him for it, and in turn, the police would also blame him and accuse him of a murder that he didn't commit, he decided to embark on this convoluted, elaborate cover-up. He fessed up to Ruby being dead and that he drove her from Arizona to California to put her on the boat, to setting it on fire, and to sinking it. But Earl insisted that he did not kill Ruby. He said that she killed herself because she had long been struggling with feelings of guilt over the fact that two of their three children had actually been fathered by their grandfather, her dad, 
who had sexually abused her and she became pregnant by him and that she had never revealed to either of her kids the truth of their paternity. And he said that she was further struggling with severe depression over the affair that Earl was having with her sister Peggy and that all of it had become more than Ruby could tolerate so she took her own life. On the stand, he said that when he discovered Ruby dead in their bed, his first thought was he was going to be blamed for her committing suicide and that he decided that he would hide what she had done. By the way, Ruby's sister Peggy did testify at the trial and she categorically denied ever having an affair with Earl. Which... (sighs) I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Is she just trying to save face, being exposed for betraying her own sister like that and potentially having played a part in the reasons why she ended up at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean? I I have no idea why, but Earl admitted to it, but she got up there and denied it. For the prosecution, they were glad to have finally have had an admission directly from Earl Morris himself that Ruby was indeed dead. They didn't have any definitive proof that she was. They didn't have a body, of course. They didn't have anybody who saw her dead or injured. And I mean, they did say early on that based on the amount of blood that was deposited into the floorboard of Earl's El Camino, that it was unlikely that anyone who suffered that much blood loss would still be alive. But really, You can't exactly determine the amount or volume of blood based on luminol testings. The luminol confirmed that blood had been deposited in the vehicle, but investigators would not have been able to determine how much blood was there, especially since it had already been cleaned up. But considering the totality of the evidence found in the house, it did strongly suggest that Ruby had met with foul play and was no longer alive. And to be honest, I would have said all of the blood in total, the blood on the headboard, which was clearly a gunshot wound to the head, the blood in the bedroom, the blood in the bathtub, plus the blood in the El Camino, all of that together is indicative of somebody most likely no longer being alive, not just the blood that was in the car. I don't even think that it was enough, to be honest, because she had already been dead for a while by then. She had bled out a lot already in the bedroom and in the bathtub. Earl claimed that he found Ruby sometime after she had shot herself in the side of her head using their 22 caliber pistol. Because he was afraid his family would blame him, he decided to cover up her suicide by transporting her body to their boat, which was docked in San Diego, and sinking it into the Pacific Ocean. But the prosecution had a bit of a surprise of their own for Earl Morris and his defense that he had come up with. You see, even though they did not have Ruby's body, they knew that based on the blood evidence that they found on the headboard, that Ruby had not been shot in the head one time. She had been shot in the head twice. And the reason that they knew this is because of the blood spatter evidence on the headboard. Remember, I told you that when they applied luminol to the headboard, they found that there had been high-velocity, fine-mist blood spatter. But there were two layers of it. Not only were there two layers 
of fine mist blood spatter, the tiny droplets that had hit the headboard did so in two different directions, meaning that Ruby Morris had been shot twice in the head, not once. One gunshot wound would not have been able to produce the two separate blood spatter patterns on the headboard, and a person taking their own life by way of a gunshot wound to the head would obviously not be able to shoot themselves twice. And in a side note, in the Forensic Files episode, it was noted that Ruby was shot in the left side of her head, but she was right-handed. It said in the episode that it would have been impossible for Ruby to have done this with her left hand, especially with the long-barreled 22 caliber pistol that they had owned. I don't know a whole lot about guns and firing guns to begin with, much less using one with my weaker hand to shoot myself. And I know in all the questionable suicide cases or staged suicide cases that we've heard about over the years, one of the mistakes often made is the victim is sometimes shot on the side of their weaker hand and the logic being that a right-handed person shooting themselves in the head would likely use their right hand and a left-handed person would likely use their left hand. But when the episode said that it would have been impossible, I would not have quite gone that far. It may have been awkward, difficult, and unlikely, but I would have stopped short of saying that it's impossible. However, the two gunshots to the head... Yeah, that's probably very impossible. In March of 1992, a 51-year-old Earl Morris was convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. And I looked him up on the Arizona Inmate Search website, and this guy is still alive today. He's 82 years old. And he's been housed at the Arizona State Prison in Tucson ever since, shortly after his conviction. He arrived there in May of 92. The last time he was up for parole was in July of 2019, and he was denied. In 2009, he was eligible for work programs, and since then, he has worked in recreation, groundskeeping, he was a clerk a porter, a trash collector, but mostly he has had work as a painter. The last time he was assigned work was in November of 2019, and I suppose that that program may have come to a stop because of COVID restrictions setting in just a few months later. Ruby Morris suffered through so much trauma and heartache through her life years of abuse that she had suffered at the hands of her own father, becoming pregnant by him and having her first child by the time she was 14, followed up by a second child a couple of years later. She met and married a man who seemed like he would be able to give her the life that she deserved for herself and for her children, Earl Morris. He even adopted her oldest child, He raised the two that she had by her own father as if they were his own. They built a successful accounting business together in Arizona. They added a third child to their family. 
But for whatever reason, it just wasn't enough for Earl Morris. Ruby wasn't enough. His successful business wasn't enough. Their beautiful home on five acres wasn't enough. And he not only betrayed Ruby, he betrayed her with and along with her very own sister, Peggy. And then he plundered their business, skimming money in order to support the long-distance affair that he was carrying on with Peggy. And when Ruby got wise to what Earl was up to, she confronted him and threatened divorce. Unfortunately, Earl Morris was too much of a bitch-ass coward to face up to it. And instead, he and his stupid-ass toupee decided murder was the better solution to his problems. At first, when I rewatched this episode of Forensic Files, I remember thinking that Earl Morris had pulled off some Vincent Brothers-type trickery, like flying out to California, renting a car, driving back to Phoenix to murder his wife. And I had some of the details of the story discombobulated around in my head, but the truth is the Forensic Files is a little bit confusing and seemed to get some of the details of the story wrong particularly that whole bit about Ruby's dad being charged with incest when the DNA results of her children revealed that their grandfather was also their father. But that information didn't come to light until 1989, and it was still early on when it came to DNA technology. And I don't even really know why Earl was included in the testing to begin with, when they wanted to know if the blood found inside the master bedroom had come from the kid's mother. And beyond that, I don't even know why they went a step further by claiming to have tested the DNA of the kids against their grandfather, only to discover that he fathered them too. Which doesn't seem like it was a thing that even happened because he had died 13 years earlier in 1976. The whole thing is really weird. And the only thing that I could think of is maybe one of the writers on the show decided to get a little bit creative in order to add another layer to the forensics angle of the show without bothering to do any fact checking. This episode, which was the fourth one in the show's second season, aired back on October 23rd, 1997. So it had only been eight years since Ruby's murder and five years since the conviction. So, I don't know. I guess nobody figured anybody would be picking apart the Forensic Files episode 25 years later. And by no means, there's no disrespect to Forensic Files. I've been a longtime fan. And it's not that it gives me pleasure to find all of these little inconsistencies. It has always been and always will be one of my favorite true crime shows of all time. As I am sure it is for many of you listening as well. And that, my dreamers, was the tale of the worst cover-ups ever. Please come on over to the Facebook discussion group if you have any questions or comments or feedbacks about this or any other episode. That is where it all happens. Don't forget to also follow California Dreaming on Twitter and Instagram. The Patreon episode for August is also already available. Surprise, surprise. I discussed yet another family annihilator. One of the youngest, if not the youngest that we've ever talked about on this show. So if you're interested in listening to that, you can subscribe 
to Patreon starting at just $1 a month. Okay, that is all for this week. We will be back soon with another episode for your listening pleasure. And until next time, sweet dreams.